Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, what is happening this week? We got Paul McGinley on the podcast coming off the Ryder Cup, right? He's still part of the Ryder Cup Captains Committee, and he's a big part of it. You guys saw that week, Golf Channel, live from coverage as a live analyst, uh, Sky Sports as well, and of course, the 2014 captain, winning captain for Team Europe. So we get into his thoughts. He's still very much a part of the back room of Team Europe. And so what was he thinking? Luke Donald and the boys got it done. What were his thoughts on you know the, the dynamics with Luke and, and how they get along? And of course, uh, there's a lot of history with those two. They played together in Ryder Cups, literally in, in some matches. And he, he was meant to pick Luke. He was thinking about picking Luke in 2014. Didn't do it. Had to make the phone call. Uh, so there's a lot that goes with it. I, I, Paul jokes that he, that he feels bad that he didn't pick Luke, so he wants to help him so much with his captaincy. So we get into that. We also talk about uh, future captains. Look ahead to spin it forward to Beth Page, and, and what is he thinking about the European team dynamic? Can they have this template that works? Can it translate onto the road? And what will, what will happen in a crazy, raucous environment in New York? So we, we talk about that, and we also mention... What are his thoughts on captains? Like, what are we going to see with Team Europe? What are they going to lean towards? What are his thoughts there? Can he get a repeat captaincy from Luke Donald? Is Tiger the main guy? Is he the go-to guy for the U.S. team? Is it going to be a foregone conclusion? So we get into that as well. A lot of other things talk about Rory and, of course, his performance in the Ryder Cup and his performance in majors. John Rahm, and he, obviously there's so much impressive Aside to John Rahm that McGinley just loves seeing there. So there's a lot that we cover. Paul McGinley here on Beyond the Clubhouse, and uh, we'll take it away here. Paul McGinley. All right, I am now joined by my next guest. Please be joined by Paul McGinley, 2014 winning Ryder Cup captain for Team Europe. Of course, he's won 10 times around the world, three-time player in the Ryder Cup. And Paul, how you doing, man? What's going on? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, um, uh, all good. I'm back in Ireland here. Brought the weather from Italy back with me. We're having a, an Indian summer here uh, at the end of it, at the uh, you know beginning of October. Yeah, no, it's crazy how so much happened um, at the Ryder Cup. There's just so much to unpack, and I, I you know, I, I want to start with this. Actually, you you often talk about the might of America. You've got to be ready to to weather the storm of uh, the might of America. And you, as a player in your prime in 2004, you took on the might of America and you beat it. Woods and love. Remember you and, and Patrick Harrington there on Saturday um, in the afternoon session. How did you, what was that like? Like, what do you remember from a big takedown of, of Tiger and, and Davis Love? Yeah, I mean, boy, oh boy, that was a, a great win for us. You know, I think Davis was three in the world at the time. Tiger was obviously in his pump. And uh, yeah, you know, it was a it was a week that uh, that went really well for Europe. Obviously, um, Tiger started out playing with Phil, didn't go so well the first day, and then he put on with Davis on day two. And yeah, I think we were two down after two, but uh, chiseled our way back into it again. It was ultimate shot. It was forces. And uh, yeah, you know, we we played solid after the start, a rocky start, and uh, 
you know, they made a few mistakes. We made a few birdies and we went off to win four and three. So obviously anytime you take out Tiger in any game, even if you are part of a partnership, it's a, it's a big deal. Mm. Well, and beating him like that, like you've mentioned winning on the road. That was part of that going into a fierce environment in Detroit and getting it done. And, you know, going forward for this Ryder Cup team, getting it done on the road is going to be important for your template. What do you see that you guys did in 04 that maybe could translate into modern day now and what you guys could do going forward? Well, we can't be telling an American audience that now, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of ideas about what we need to do. Uh, you know, we've been on the road and uh, certainly we won a Medina in 12. At 16, we were heavily beaten and... Uh, you know, two years ago in Whistling Straits, we were heavily beaten. So, you know, we need to uh, get back to what we did. And I mean, 12 was unbelievable in Miracle of Medina. We, we were on our way to be beaten, you know, very heavily there. And, you know, the heroics of, of a few players, Ian Poulter in particular, got us back within touch and distance. And I think America made some mistakes in the strategy, which they wouldn't make now in terms of how they put out the team on Sunday. And we took advantage of that. Uh, but yeah, I, look, I think, you know, first of all, foremost, it's all about the players. You know, you need to have a str- strong team. And I think we will have a strong team uh, in two years' time. We we had uh, our youngest ever team uh, this time. Um, I think just over the age of 30 is the youngest team we've ever put out. Um, you know, we treat the top four players in the world and, um, you know, all playing well. And, uh, you know, that gives, gives your team a good chance. And then you put the likes of Hatton and Fitzpatrick and, Fleetwood and all of those guys in behind it. And, you know, we got the basis of a good team. And that's the first and most important thing you have. But you've got to have the character to go into the eye of the storm in America. You know, it's not easy. We won in Detroit. Uh, we won in Chicago, two big major cities uh, in America. And, you know, <laughs> going into New York now is the ultimate. Uh, so it's, it's, there's a lot ahead. There's a lot ahead. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of ideas that need to be bounced around. And, you know, we need to look at uh, playing away from home in a different way than what we certainly have done two years ago and what we did uh, in, in 2016 as well. Mm. Well, and to this ingredient that you're putting together of, of, of taking on this challenge of winning on the road, looking ahead in two years, you often talk about inspiration. The best players, when you can get them inspired, you're playing inspired golf, targets become a lot bigger on a small golf course, right? There's so much going on that, that, that can elevate their game. Um, what do you make of you know, we talk about inspiration from Luke Donald, how he was able to harness that with, you know, getting players to think about who really mattered to them in those two minute vignettes, right? There's a lot of ways you can do that. Talk about their hometown, as you mentioned before, speak to their heart. How do you get to these stars and, and, and the soldiers of your team? How do you get to their heart? I mean, what other ways can you do that? Is it, a, is it specific to when you're on the road? Are there other ways you can speak to their heart going into a big match? Like Beth Page was yeah. I mean, we've we got to dream, dream up uh, areas how we're going to do that, you know. And, um, you know, I, I think the atmosphere is going to be electric uh, in two years in New York. And, um, you know, it's about going into that, you know, electric um, atmosphere and, and still performing, you know. And, um, you know, whether that's kind of going underneath the surface and, and kind of letting it all become white noise and, and you kind of disengage from it. Uh, or whether it's uh, going into the eye of the storm and, and, and enjoying, you know, the banter that's going to come your way and the stick that's going to come your way and, you know, feel like, you know, I want to give it back to them a little bit and this is how I'm going to do it with this shot. Uh, there's two different ways of doing it. So I think a lot will depend on the players. Uh, you know, each player sees things in a different way. There's, 
there's there's loads of uh, there's loads of different ways of, of getting what you're looking for here more than anything Gary, is you're looking for performance that's what you're looking for everything drives mm. towards performance all the stuff we're talking about inspiring players and all that, everything is driven towards performing to performing in a very hostile atmosphere and anything at all any tweaks that you can do or any psychological things you can do behind the scenes uh, to, to 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 line up the players in order to be um you know emotionally as well as um focused uh, on on the challenge ahead and 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 that certainly is is the key uh, more than anything else it's it's getting a player to a place where he's going to play his best golf mm. well you mentioned when you've won uh, in 2014 that a lot of it too was the atmosphere in the team room you were able to get just so much going there is some the importance of the assistant captains right the vice captains the caddies even right just getting them to get your players in a place where they're, Hey, you know, this is an adventure, right? This is not just, you know, uh, life or death. This is fun. Let's go out and get it. Uh, Sam Torrance was able to get that out of you as well. in O2. So like, how, how do you balance that as you, as everyone looks towards a team room in, in 2025? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you don't want to get the players too hyped up. It was one of the things that I was worried about on Saturday night in Italy was, you know, with, with all the, conjecture that went on in the car park and you know the emotion that was obviously spilling out um the worry would be would there be a reset overnight and would the team come out focused the next day or would they be too emotionally charged because if you get too emotionally charged that gets in the way of performance as well so but luca and his team looked like he did a really good job and i was really keen to watch the body language uh, on friday morning in the singles of the first few games and even tyrell hatton was not losing the head and that told me that yeah okay this team has been reset overnight <laughs> And, uh, you know, they went out and, and obviously played well. You know, I think we won four, four out of the first six points and, you know, we're pretty much over the line from there. Um, so it's getting that balance right. And, and there's a lot of tweaking that goes on. There's man management that goes on uh, in the heat of battle, you know, a situation like that when Rory flares up and he's emotionally charged. And, you know, that's where a good captain comes in and, you know, teammates as well and kind of just lower down the tone again, you know, have a nice calm meeting. Uh, but sometimes also you need to charge up the meeting and you need to get that emotion stirred. So a lot of it is dependent and and, and sensing the mood of the room um, and, and the mood of the players. Um, and it's not just the captain who does that. You know, you rely a lot on the feedback of the of the vice captains. I certainly did anyway. Uh, you know, I chose my cap- vice captains very carefully. And, uh, you know, I, I knew that they could read players. They could read the game of golf. And, uh, you know, they knew when, you know, where the mood was and it's just getting, getting that mood just right. It's really important. Hmm. And, and the performance of, of these vice, uh, vice captains and and these caddies in terms of setting that team room, how, how do you feel they did this year? Uh, they, listen, I mean, the whole European team were brilliant. You know, I, I think everything that we've done before, you know, including, uh, I said this on TV, including the work that I did, you know, that template that I, you know, very much adhered to. I think that's been put in place by Thomas Bjorn. I think Luke has taken it again to another level and, you know, enhanced it and, and um, embellished it and, and, and made it even more alive. So uh, it's great to see that, you know, the success being replicated and uh, we've nailed the home template. There's no doubt at the moment uh, you could say that we've nailed the home template, uh, but we still have a lot of questions to answer away from home. Hmm. Uh, you know, you mentioned this is one of the best performances you know, you tweeted that one of the best performances, it moved the bar to a new level. Um, you know, what wh- what makes you say that? Is it just the fashion that it was executed or, or, or what, what? why do you say that? Um, I, I, there's not a reason for it. I, I think I think it was the best team we ever put out. Um, I think it was the most informed team we ever put out. Um, 
you know, I felt all this before the Ryder Cup and I didn't want to get too excited about it or come out publicly about it. But <laughs> we, we, we were really primed. You know, we had played a nice bit of golf. We went over golf from the FedEx. Um, we had any golf that the team did play, they played well. Um, and, um, you know, we treated the top four players in the world. Um, I think Luke did a great job of engaging the players emotionally in what was going on. He did a really good job with statistics and setting up the golf course. Uh, that, that was going to slightly suit our, our favor. We had the big advantage of the crowd at home. Um, you know, and there's a lot of things primed uh, for us to have a really good Ryder Cup. And and so it turned out. I mean, I, I think I said that on the Monday and Tuesday of the Ryder Cup. And, and then I looked at America and I didn't see a lot of priming going on from the American team. So I think, you know, I did feel there was, God, I said, is this too good to be true? I mean, you know, we're coming off a 10-point defeat two years ago. And yet, here we are now, what I felt, we were in a really, really strong position and America were weakened. Um, but, you know, and so it turned out. Uh, but you can never gauge these things 100%. But I certainly had a really good feeling and I told all my friends, uh, we have a WhatsApp group back in Ireland here and I told them all on Thursday night, you know, put a good bet on Europe to win. I really did feel we were going to win. And, and you just said, if I said this right, the, this is the best team we ever put out there. Like this is in, in all of Ryder Cup Europe history. I think so, yeah. I mean, more, than, more so know, than Seve. Yeah, well, you go back to the great players of Seve and you go Faldos and the Langers and the Wisdoms and the Montes, you know, the Darren Clarks and wherever you want to go with, you know, all of those great players. But, you know, from one to 12, how strong were those play, were those teams that they played in? Uh, and I think if you were to rate everybody one to 12, I think this was uh, the best team. You know, I don't think we've ever had three of the top four players in the world before on our team. Uh, with a lot of really good players and high-ranked players, but did we really have three of the top four players in the world? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, as great as Seve was, and uh, following all of those guys, you know, they, you know, they, we almost had a, a, a double-tiered t- team. You know, had a very strong uh, front row, and then second row was not so strong, and you know, we relied very, very heavily on those top players. Whereas now, uh, or this Ryder Cup, I think Luke had, had the luxury of, you know, a pretty strong 12 players. And he illustrated that by playing everybody on the first day. And also and having... Every, and everybody winning half a point or more. Right. And what does that do psychologically for your team? You know what I mean? When you're able to win that, everyone's able to high five and know that they accomplished something from day one. Absolutely. I mean, we came out of that first day flying. You know, everybody had won a half a point or more in that first day. Uh, we had a four-point lead, and oh no, we had a six-point lead, did we? I think it was six points, yeah. And we we were absolutely flying. Uh, no, five points. I think it was five points, and and we were flying, absolutely flying. And uh, and everybody had been blooded, and everybody had a taste of it. Uh, so now we had the luxury of of moving things around as well, and the luxury of resting John Ram on the on the afternoon of the second day. So yeah. you know everything went you know incredibly well from a European point of view. It really did. I mean, uh, we didn't seem to have any kind of uh, worries or conjecture or concerns, you know, the score line lined up with, um, you know, everything that we'd hoped for. Well, you also mentioned too on live from on the golf channel after day one, you, you've got to refocus after day one, you know, reframe your mind and get ready. You know, sessions are done. We're on to the next, right? How important is that in a Ryder Cup? Well, it is from both teams. I mean, you know, if you're five points ahead, like we were, um, you know, all you want to do the next day is, you know, hold a position. Uh, you don't need, as long as you don't lose any points and you have a five point league in singles, which you managed to do, um, well, then you're flying. You're almost pretty much over the line. Um, from a Europe, from an American point of view, you know, they had to come at us and I knew they were going to come at us. I thought on the morning of the second day, they were going to be stronger than they were. 
Um, but the afternoon of the second day, they did come at us. Um, you know, and that was the first time they really kicked as a team in the afternoon of the second day. Uh, first time America really kicked, and and they did come at us and Cantley played great in those last few holes to, uh, you know, give them a little bit of momentum. But they were still five points behind going into the singles. It was a, uh, it was an unbelievably tall order. It had never been done to come back from five points down. I know they raised the gallop, and I know they got pretty close, but. You know, you always felt the odds were very, very strongly in Europe's favor uh, on Sunday, particularly when they won four points out of the first six. Right. And when Cantley did those heroics and and it led to, you, you know, the, the Joey LaCava and, and, and Rory getting into things. But you tweeted, you said hearts on fire. You know what I mean? You, you love to see hearts on fire. Kind of explain that for the audience. Yeah, it's just about being emotionally engaged. You know, I think we all, whether it be playing soccer, whether it be playing baseball or whatever you're doing, even as a fan, you know, when you're emotionally engaged in something, that's when sport is at its best. And I've certainly always felt when, when I'm emotionally um, really engaged in what I'm doing, that's when I have the most fun. And, and that's when I normally play my best. And But you got to get that balance right. Um, it's not just about all fired up when you go out with a massive amount of aggression. That might be good in NFL or rugby or something like that. But in golf, it's not because it's a mental game as well. So you got to get that balance right between, you know, the saying I used as well too, it comes from the world of rugby, you know, hearts on fire, but head in a fridge. Um, so as much as your heart is on fire and you're raring to go, you've also got, you know, you're up, you know upstairs in, in your head, you know, there's a cool, you know, uh, and centered focus about what you're doing. And, and getting that balance right uh, as an elite sportsman, um, well, that's Nirvana. Should you get it right? Hmm. But be even specific to, to to Rory in that case, as he she was showing so much passion, right? He obviously his heart was ignited uh, from that thing with with, with hap- what happened with Joe Lacaba, and then also in the car park. Like, how did you, you know, respond in real time to that? What was your thought? Well, at the time, I loved it. Uh, you know, one <laughs> of the things that I felt we were lacking in uh, in Whistling Straits was that, you know, we didn't have a lot of fight about us as a team. Uh, I know there was a lot of headwinds we had. We had a lot of uh, players off form. We had an aging team. We had no fans there because of COVID. We hadn't practiced properly because of COVID. We got a qualification system wrong. They finished too late. Players didn't have a lot of time to prepare. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of things going against us, against a very strong American team playing at home. Uh, you know, and we, we we went in and got a record loss there. But um, you know, it's it's a different story this time. You know, we we, we learned a lot from that, a lot from from that. I think a lot of credit to Luke, um, unearthing some new talent, uh, energizing um, the top players in the team, getting them focused uh, on where they need to be focused, and and by leading by example. And those top players, you lead by example. You lead by making points. You know, it's not about Rory McIlroy or John Ram being a rah-rah, great teammate and going around and loving everybody and hugging everybody and giving these big, brave heart speeches standing on tables. That's not <laughs> that's not what leadership is. Um, you know, leadership is uh, is leading by example and having really good body language. And I could certainly see that when they started out their singles on on uh, on Sunday morning. There was a reset. There was a reset from all the emotion of the previous night. Hmm. Well, speaking of the Braveheart thing, we, we we did hear Jose Maria in 2012 uh, quote Braveheart there at the closing ceremonies that not every man dies, not every man really lives. So I mean, they, they, hey, they, they, there's some of the Braveheart stuff you can't take that out of it. Uh, well, yeah, as I say earlier, you know, sometimes you gotta you gotta give the Braveheart speech, you know, and certainly uh, Ollie get the Braveheart speech in Medina after that first day when we were on our knees. Yes, indeed. Uh, we were talking about performances of players. Rory McIlroy had his best Ryder Cup at four and one. 
what a performance. Um, what, what did you make from, from how he was able to accomplish that? I think he was focused. Um, I think he was emotionally engaged. I think he was primed. He'd had a pretty decent run. He's had a good run of, of form. Um, I think he really enjoyed with a good partnership. He enjoyed his partnership, particularly with Tommy Fleetwood. Um, I don't think he played his best golf, um, but, you know, he's got so much talent. And, you know, when he's focused and his heart's on fire, he's emotionally engaged. He's pretty formidable. He finds a way of getting the job done. And and although I don't think he played his best golf in the Ryder Cup, he was, you know, an outstanding player in terms of points won. Um, and he led by example. He led by example. And it was a big haul of four points out of five. Well, and especially being on a team now w- w- devoid of Sergio and devoid of some of those perennial leaders. I mean, I'm sure that kind of elevated Rory's position, right? Yeah. I mean, he said that afterwards that, you know, the fact that those guys weren't there kind of forced him and John Ram and, you know, Tommy Fleetwood and Victor Hovland to kind of step into that leadership role, which they were very happy to do and, and uh, seemed to thrive on it. Uh, he, he said that it, that it energized them and, uh, well, the proof is in the pudding with the huge amount of the hall of points that those four players in particular had. Yeah, yeah, proof in the pudding for sure with Rory. Um, well, hey, I, I want to look just briefly at Rory's last 10 years and, and we think about what do you make of what he's done in his last 10 years? I know he hasn't won a major. Is How would you assess it? Is there any sense of disappointment when you look at that or or, or how do you chalk that up? Of course it's disappointment because at the end of the day he's going to be gauged by major championships because of who he is. Um but look, there's not a big title he hasn't won in the world of golf, you know, whether it be the Australian Open, whether it be the Irish Open, whether it be any of the tournaments in America, wherever you want to go, uh, whether it's winning the FedEx, whether it's winning in the you know, race to Dubai, um, you know, Wentworth. I mean, any tournament you want to go to of any significance in the world, Canadian Open, Rory McIlroy has won it. So, I mean, he, he's a standout player. He's a sensational player. And it's a shame that it's 10 years now, 10 years next year since he did win his major champions, last major. But keeps going where he's going and, and not thinking about it too much and just going and, and playing and, you know, being emotionally engaged and getting that poise right between emotion and engagement uh, and, you know, heading the fridge as well too and gets into that nirvana spot. You know, I think it's a matter of time. You know, he's starting to become really consistent now in the majors and churning out top tens and, you know, getting more and more in contention. And he's just got to keep on doing what he's doing. He's on the right track. Hmm. Well, and speaking of doing what he's doing at, at, Augusta specifically, is there anything that you see with him going into that week? I mean, it's just it, everyone knows the pressure he's under, but is there anything that you see with with how he takes on that challenge? Yeah, I mean, the weight of expectation on his shoulders is huge and that weighs heavy, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know the answers around that. And that's where I think Bob Rattel is a very important guy, part of his team. It's, you know, dealing with those expectations and not just dealing with them, thriving on them. You know, the greats, there's a reason why only five players in the history of the game have won four major championships. You know, the, you know you've got to be something special to do that. He's on the threshold of that. Uh, but it's a quantum leap uh, to finish uh, the last one in particular. Um, so we're going to have to, uh, yeah, he's going to have to deal with that expectation. That's the biggest challenge. It's not the golf course. It's not his game. It's nothing else except dealing with that weight of expectation. Granted, you know, there's a lot of competition now compared to might have been 10 years ago, but you know, he's got to deal with that. And if you want to be, you know, a Grand Slam winner and be only the sixth person in the history of the game to do that and move yourself into a completely different echelon from everybody, everyone in your peers, well, it comes with a price. And, uh, you know, that price is high expectation, but it's not insurmountable. Right. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how he does here in these next few years at, at Augusta. And when I look at current events, what's happened in, in golf, 
Dunhill, the Alfred Dunhill, always a great event there in Scotland. We saw uh, Martin Slumbers play with Yasser, as we see kind of that coming together. It looks to, it looks to be that way. Um, what do you make of this kind of discussions of the live merger with PGA Tour, DP World Tour? Kind of what are your thoughts on that? And, and what have you heard about uh, the progressions of it? Yeah, I think it was inevitable. Um, you know, I didn't think it was going to happen as quick as it did. Um, but it looks like, you know, they've got somewhat of a of a common ground. And I'm going to be very interested to see, you know, where it gets to between now and the 31st of December when they say they're going to have some kind of a an outcome, a good, bad or indifferent. Um, uh, I know there's also from, from reading between the lines as well, too, and, and, and certainly... Uh, in the media, there's uh, there's some potential private equity involved as an option, uh, as opposed to Saudi. I don't know how much how real that is, um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's unbelievable uh, how quickly it's it's kind of evolved, even in the last twelve months from where we were twelve months ago. Um, but you know, what a time to be a player. I mean, you know, the 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 business model is worth this, uh, and yet the players are playing for a for you know prize monies uh, way exceeding that. <laughs> You know, no other sport does that. You know, you basically, you know, you, you reap what you sow. And, and if you earn X amount of money, that's your business model and that's what you work with. But golf players have the opportunity now to play for a whole lot more than what the golf model is producing uh, because of the Saudi involvement. So, you know, I'm sure they're going to shake the tree as much as they can to see if they can find a common ground uh, to take advantage of that. Mm. I know there's still a lot to be sorted out, but given uh, the merger and the direction of that, um, should Henrik Stenson get a, ch a chance or, or at least a, an ability to be looked at again as a possibility of captaincy? I, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't want to preempt that by saying anything uh, on that. I think uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens. It could be a potential negotiating tactic for the DP World Tour in particular. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it could be leverage for them. Um, you know, they, they may well use that. Um, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Um you know, there's obviously a lot of animosity has happened. Uh, a lot of things were said and a lot of positions entrenched were taken very strongly. Um, but, you know, all things, you know, can find a common ground. So I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, but it is it is uh, something that probably is going to be part of, you know, whatever leverage the DP World Tour have, I'm sure Ryder Cup is going to be uh, the standout one. Mm. And, it, you know, thanks for um going with me on that i appreciate you, you you taking that answer i know it's you know it's there's a lot to be decided as you said december 31st a lot going on there um and also too you said the you just met, finished with the Ryder cup there i think of emotions and the Ryder cup your Ryder cup europe team on on twitter has been amazing and you talked about uh also the the media comms team has been awesome uh with scott crockett and what effort you guys have put in but they were able to capture emotion of Luke Donald with Tommy Fleetwood saying, hey, I love you, man. We, we just won the Ryder Cup. All these cool little vignettes have come out in the last week. I want to know from you, Paul, what was your conversation like with Luke in the aftermath, that, that first conversation? You guys you guys got it done. Like, how did that feel? What, was that, what were those emotions like? Yeah, I was just really happy for him. You know, um, he didn't get the job first off. Everybody knows that. Henrik Stenson got it. I wasn't part of that decision-making process. And I was sorry for Luke. I really thought he would have been a great captain. Uh, but then it came around to him anyway. And, and you know, I was delighted to be uh, uh, on his shoulder for the last 12 months. And uh, I felt like I owed him a bit because I didn't pick him in 2014. <laughs> um, and he reached out to me, you know, regularly. And we had a lot of chats about a lot of things. And, uh, 
I was happy to be a sounding board for him. Uh, I'm sure he had a lot of people sounding boards as well as his vice captains. And, you know, it was great to be uh, feel like I was part of the team again. And, and uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, giving him some insights and giving some ideas. I think he was very considered um, when he did ask me questions. Um, they were very pointed and uh, he never said, OK, that's great. I'm going to do that. He said, mm, that's interesting. Thanks very much. And off he went and then made up his own mind from there, which he should do, you know, it, you know, having sounding boards are really important from people who've been there and done it and know how you feel and know what pressures you're under. Um, so I was really, really happy for him um, that it worked out as well as he did. Uh, I really meant it when I felt that, you know, he's taken a lot of the ideas that we had and, and enhanced them and made them better. Um, but, you know, importantly, didn't stray away from what our winning template is, certainly at home. Uh, and uh, to a large extent, he improved it. Mm. Um, it's It's my observation when I think about what you've said about whistling straights right and how you guys lost in record margin and you picked a lot of players who were out of form you picked players based on name right uh obviously that was a big part of your team is having guys they weren't quite there in form the american team this this past week had some players that were not quite in form um you made you referenced it there having the tough call with luke donald who is one of the best players ever and in 2014 you had to call him to hey you know what you're just not playing well enough how would you have navigated if you were in zach johnson's shoes dealing with these captain's picks uh, that he had to make and and some of these you know as he said on live from you know jordan spieth maybe you would have had to make that call and say you're great in this event but not this time around yeah, I mean, I know, uh, you know, form is very important. And all of these players are great. Um, and, you know, what you're looking for in the captain more than anything else is guys, you know, coming into form or having form going in. And I, I know from experience, you know, I, I made one team uh, in 2006 when I had made all my qualifying early in the qualification. You know, by, by May of that year, I had made the team. So then I went through the summer and played pretty poorly in the summer. So I came into the Ryder Cup on off form. Um, and because I qualified so early and I played so well early in the qualifying campaign. So, you know, one of the things we did in Europe was, was tweak, the, tweak the qualification system a little bit um, and, and try to find as many players in form as possible and, and try to get guys pushing towards the line. And, you know, going from three picks to six was important. Um, it was important because of two things, because if you have six picks, so say you go from three to six, it gives you three more opportunities to pick guys in form. But it also dismisses the three guys who are least in form out of the equation, and you don't have to pick them. So that was uh, it was very important that we moved from three to six, um, and because it, it fixed two things that we needed to be fixed. Because as you say, you know, we had a, a number of players that had hung on and just about qualified for the team and whistling straights, and you know, were off form by the time the Ryder Cup came around. And we had a couple of guys that were coming into form, but we had no picks left. Um, because he had gone with the party, had gone with the established players that many thought we should pick. Um, you know, there was a couple of guys, Alex Noran, I think, remember for one, who was coming into form at that time. At that time, uh, but you know, he'd no more picks to give him. Um, so it was important that we tweaked our system, and I think it, we had real benefits from that. We also finished the qualification system a little bit earlier as well, in order to give guys a proper opportunity to uh, prepare. And part of that preparation was. You know, spending forty-eight hours down in Italy um, on a on a on a recce trip. Uh, all twelve players went. All twelve players caddies went. Uh, all, all twelve caddies went, and the whole backroom team went. Um, all the vice captains went, and it was a full turnout. And everybody went, got engaged. A lot of bonding went on there. 
Um, you know, so people, they got to see the hotel. They got to see the golf course. A lot of them had played Italian Open anyway. Uh, they got to read the backroom team. They tried on their uniforms. So they didn't have to worry about that the week of the Ryder Cup. We got a lot of things done over uh, over those couple of days well in advance that made us hit the ground running with less to think about when we got to Italy. So we were a very, very well-prepared, and well-drilled team by the time we got to Italy. And I kind of knew all that was going on behind the scenes. And, and uh, you know, it's, you know, part of the template is being prepared. And, and, and we certainly brought that to another level again. I don't think we'd ever had a team that had all gathered um, because of schedules and stuff, had all gathered uh, at the venue, um, you know, a good two weeks in advance, uh, which Luke did. So, uh, you know, I, I really felt, as I say, one of the reasons why I did feel on the Wednesday and Thursday beforehand that we were really, really primed for a good performance. I didn't think we'd win as easy as we did. Um, but I also felt that America were, were not as primed as they should be, um, you know, with you know nine of the players not having played for four and 85 weeks. You mentioned uh, Nick Darty at the um, captain's dinner that uh, this Ryder Cup week that you would have done it captaincy again if you would have been asked. Absolutely would have done it for a second time. Just the thrill of it all, right? What do you make of twenty twenty five in in Ryder Cup Europe and and Luke and his prospects? Yeah, I mean we've always been very strong in Europe. That you know it's a one go only thing. Uh, certainly in the last couple of decades, and there's so many guys lined up to be the captain. It's an unbelievable honor. Um, and, you know, all the guys want to do it. It's a huge, huge honor when your peers vote you to lead them in a Ryder Cup. Uh, so it was kind of more out of out of that sentiment that I did not put my name forward after that, and not, or, or the captains didn't as well. Uh, but I think we're in a different different place now, you know, with a number of players going to live um, and, you know, and rooting themselves out at this moment of time as we speak. Um, I think, uh, you know, there is an opportunity for somebody to go again. And obviously, Luke, uh, you know, he's been widely talked about about going again because, you know, there's a little bit of a vacuum now uh, because, you know, we have lost four or five potential captains that were just kind of lined up one after the other. So uh, don't be surprised if he goes again. But then again, you know, the players committee who I'm not involved in now, but, you know, they may have may have other views and go back to, no, 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 it's a one time only and off we go. So we'll have to wait and see how that pans out. But I, I wouldn't rule out Luke and I think these extenuating circumstances of, of of the live guys off the pitch combined with the fact that Luke came into the, into the game late, remember. He didn't get the full, pretty much two-year lead into it. He only had a year um, into it. Uh, you know, might, might be valid reasons to, to give him a, a second go. That's if he wants it, of course. A lot will depend. Everything will depend on whether Luke wants to do it again or not. Hmm. It's not going to be easy in New York, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, speaking in, in New York, I mean, the Americans, do you feel like Tiger's the, the leading man at this stage? From what Americans are saying, yeah. I mean, let's certainly read that in the media. I don't know. I know Tiger is front and center at the moment in all that's going on with the negotiations behind the scenes with, with Saudi and, and PIF and, uh, you know, potential private equity as well and the PGA Tour. And I'm sure there's lots of stuff going on that's taken up his time and, and energies at the moment. So whether he wants to throw captaincy in on top of all that, I'm not so sure. We'll have to wait and see. And Tiger is his own man, as you know, and he'll make his own decision when he's ready. Definitely. John Rahm's coming off a really good Ryder Cup. Uh, very impressive stuff. He says, what you do there, um, what we have done or what you may do going forward really, truly doesn't matter. Because once you walk through this team room and experience this is what he said on that Sunday night. What do you make of his performance? Just amazing. I think, you know, I think this guy could, you know, go on to be something absolutely extraordinary, you know, uh, and I'd be really, really surprised if he's not a Grand Slam winner at the end of his career. I think he's got the skill set to win. Um, you know, all four of the major championships. I think he's got the drive. I think he's got the ambition. He certainly got the game. 
Um, you know, he's just a he's just a competitive animal on top of everything else. You know, a born competitive animal. Um, you know, I, I'm hugely impressed with John Ram. I, I think he's just sensational. I really do. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I really think he's going to have a, a huge, huge golfing CV at the end of his career. Uh, I just see, you know, despite all the success, incredible ambition, incredible drive. Uh, and that's not a, always easy to sustain when you have as much success and as much money made early in your, early in your career like he has done. Well, we got two minutes left. I want to wrap up with um, you, you've been so good with, with with your practice rotating. You always like to work on rotation around your body. Also taking the club to the inside. Give give our audience a sense when we're on the driving range. What are some things we really want to focus on? What do you focus on as you, as you work through your swing? Well, the biggest thing for me in golf is coordination, you know, um, and, and the coordination is between the body turning and the arm swinging. And no matter who you are, whether you're Jim Furyk, uh, whether you're Fred Couples or whether you're Adam Scott with a classic golf swing, uh, you know, it's all, they all have wonderful coordination and uh, everybody's got a different sense of timing. Uh, and, you know, when you're playing well, it feels like you're swinging in slow motion. You've got control of the club head. And, you know, if I'm going to give anybody one piece of advice, it's just, you know, beat to your own drum, get your own sense of timing uh, in the golf swing. Uh, and, and that's really important. Um, and the second one is to play one-dimensionally. You know, whether that be a little fade or a little draw, whether that be a low shot or whether it be a high shot, whatever shot comes naturally to you, kind of go with that. Certainly if you're an amateur golfer, go with that and, and, and play within yourself. Hmm. But are any specific drills on the range that will help us, do you think? Well, one of the big things that we all, mistakes we all make is that, you know, our body outraces our arms. Um, and, you know, my favorite drill in that regard, when that happens, um, you know, and then the club gets stuck behind you, arms can't catch up, the body's outraced it. Uh, but one of the drills that uh, the great John Jacobs used to give me um, was, was to hit balls with a seven iron with your ankles touching, your feet close together, and mm. swinging it by 80% with a seven iron. Uh, because what happens is if you use your body with your feet standing together, you'll fall over. So it forces you to uh, use your arms more um, and, you know, hit kind of 10 shots that way and then five shots normal, 10 shots with your ankles touching and then five shots normal with a seven iron, no more than a seven iron. And it's always a good drill to feel that bit of arm speed um, and to feel the arms. You know, the arms are a hugely important part of the of the game. But what happens is a lot is that our body outraces our arms and our arms don't get a chance to get used. Yeah. Great, great point. Great knowledge here from Paul McGinley. Hey, appreciate you coming on the podcast. I, I know it's a, a great chat and, and it's so quickly after the Ryder Cup. Really good timing, my friend. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Gary. Keep up the good work. Enjoy your stuff. All right, my thanks to Paul McGinley for jumping on. I, I love some of his thoughts there on John Rahm. Just very, very high on this guy. He thinks he's got the career grand slam. Coming up, it's just there's just so much confidence in in what he sees in Rom. So, hope you guys had a blast listening to that. I think there was a lot of uh, of thoughts on Rory, which was good to hear about his performance in the Ryder Cup. Maybe didn't bring his best, but but he's pretty bullish on Rory going ahead uh, in majors and what he could do um, in the upcoming years, right? And I was surprised he did he did call it a disappointment, right? For the last ten years, uh, not winning a major, but he was fine calling it a disappointment uh, for Rory's career. But at the same time. Look what he has won. So a kind of a glass half full, half empty there from Paul McGinley. But hope that was a good listen for you. I think some good thoughts on on the culture of Team Europe. As as you could tell, I was digging and trying to understand like why 
what motivates them, right? Like the, the, the pressure behind it, but also playing inspired, right? As he says, hearts on fire, a brain in the fridge. So that's a lot of fun uh, thoughts there from, from Paul McGinley. Hope you guys had a good listen with that, and we'll talk to you soon here on Beyond the Clubhouse.